Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillah, I'm good to hear from you. Really great to hear from you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay, so we're going to get um, stuck in. I'm just going to do the uh, introductions. So, Assalamu alaikum wa to everybody out there listening. So, this is another third eye open. And it's also a Black History Month special because in the UK, it's Black History Month. October is Black History Month. Alhamdulillah, I've been a while for away uh, for quite a while, and now this month I want to bring you some really exciting guests, very inspirational, and give us things to think about. Because with Black History Month happening, one of the most important things we want we want our, ourselves to be inspired, and we want to use this time to to gain knowledge and understanding. So when we come out of this month, you know we are. Uh, more enlightened than when we started the month. So today we have an amazing guest. We have Professor Marguerite Aziza Hill, who is an adjunct professor, blogger, editor, and freelance writer with articles published in How We Fight White Supremacy, a 2019 Time, Huffington Post, Al Jazeera, English Islamic Monthly, The Muslim Matters. He has five years full-time experience working full-time in community organizations and five years experience in administration and technical writing in Silicon Valley small businesses and startups. She has over 15 years teaching experience at various capacities including substitute teacher, instructor, curriculum design, school policy, teacher training as well as teaching assistant and teaching fellow she taught writing and literature at al-aqsa islamic academy for two years developed instructed an art and literacy class for clara muhammad summer camp and worked as a lead teacher and curriculum developer at united muslim masjid summer madrasa her fellowships in organizing non-profit management and policy include Bender Arts Community Organization Residency, Women's Policy Institute County Fellowship, uh, PICO National Leadership Training, and Next Generation Leaders of Color Inland Region. She earned her bachelor's degree in history from Santa Clara University in 2003 and master's in history of the Middle East and Islamic Africa from Stanton University in 2006. Her research includes colonial perception, mixed race identities in northern Nigeria, anti-colonial resistance among West Africans in Sudan during the early 20th century, transformations in Islamic learning in northern Nigeria, and international studies program at Al-Azhar and Cairo University. She has given talks and lectures in various universities and community centers throughout the country. Alhamdulillah, I'm sure you agree that is a very uh, impressive um, CV. So uh, welcome, Professor Marguerite. Thank you for having me. It's definitely an honor to be here during Black History Month in the UK. And it just really means so much to connect um, across the pond. Absolutely. 
Yes, mashallah, definitely, yes. Thank you, thank you so much for you know for taking your time out of your busy schedule um, to, to, to be with us today. It's actually great to have you. It's an absolute honor, alhamdulillah. So we're going to get stuck right in. Okay, so tell us, so um, so what is your ethnic background? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm African-American. So my um, ancestor, I'm the descendant of... Um, of enslaved, kidnapped and enslaved Africans um, who came to the Americas. Um, most of my family um, were, um, you know, like when we do the, you know, the DNA things, like all that history was was lost, right? It's, um, you know, partly in the Carolinas. Um, there is some who, um, like my, on my maternal side, my great, great grandfather came from Jamaica, but the the rest are um, descendants of Africans. And then, you know, like with typically with most African Americans, um, you know, we do have um, because of that the trauma and and the uh, sexual abuse, we we have a a, um, a smidgen, a, a you know, or a splattering of European ancestry. Um, but yeah, like it's 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 definitely. You know, like it's sometimes a challenge to talk about like our history, but I do take great deep pride in in finding out um, my ancestry comes from um, like the Congo region, but also in West Africa from, um, you know, even regions that are predominantly Muslim. And so that that was really exciting kind of finding um, finding a little bit of that lost history. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. Wow. So, so you've actually done, so have you actually taken that, that, um, was it the, the DNA test? Yeah. Yeah. So Ooh. I, I, I took it, my, my mother took it. There's a lot of like the kind of family mysteries because of, uh, because of the Northern migration. And mm. so that, that was the time between like the, you know, in the, in the first half of the 20th century where there was so much um, racial violence where people were forcibly, like they left the South where they at least knew a little bit of, of, of like their own history and the family ties. And so during that period, there was a lot that was lost. And, and so, um, you know, for my family, it's sort of like it solves some mysteries. Sometimes it solves some you know, we find connections of family family members that are lost. At least we could find them on the family tree, and sometimes we reach out. And so it's, um, you know, for me, it brought a little bit of um, the closure, and and actually did away with some of the family myths, right? Of like, I mean, I grew up with with um, the the uh, the myth of having um, Native American ancestry, and. And so there's actually a little bit more complex relations between um, escaped Africans and Native American tribes in Georgia and, and, and Florida. And so there were escaped Africans who um, joined Seminole communities. And so that's kind of like part of the family lore, that history. But, um, you know, which I do embrace that history of resistance, but it's also, you know, like it was you know, as opposed to the Native American side, it was more the European side that, you know, gave my mom certain features and some of those were passed on to me. So, um, you know, like it's it's always like kind of uncovering our own family history for African-Americans is 
is um, discovery and it also there's traces of, of the, the trauma of the transatlantic slave trade. Mm. So, okay, so you said that you grew up in the US. So whereabouts, whereabouts did you grow up? Yeah, so I, w- I was born in New Jersey, so Trenton, New Jersey. And um, my first five years were there. And then uh, we moved um, all the way across the country to the West Coast in California. So I, I grew up, my childhood was in, um, in the Bay Area, Northern California. And that, um, that area in the 80s, it was kind of, you know, it had developed mainly from the defense industry. And out of the defense industry, that's where the Silicon Valley, the kind of boom around technology, and so I grew up in um, San Jose, Santa Clara, and I went to school there. So I spent most of my life in the Bay Area up until I was about 34. And then I lived, I lived in different parts of the country from um, Philadelphia. Um, there was a brief time I spent time in New York in the 90s, a little, you know, like I've been all over in the, in the 90s, and, but I was really happy, um, you know, like we, after I lived in Philadelphia for five years to move back to California and be a little bit closer to my family. Mm, okay, great. Very interesting. So, so tell us, what was your first racist experience? Gosh, if I, if I was going to go back, I, I think it was um, even before I had left to um, California and... Um, this was when um, I was a little girl and um, I was about, I had to be about four years old because my sister who passed away, she was still alive and there were some missionaries um, and they were not black. I mean, I'm um, not ex- exactly sure what ethnicity that they were, but they were, they had dark hair, like light skin. And um, they had told us that, um, when we would die that, um, you know, like if we were saved um, by Jesus, that um, God would burn off our skin and we'd all be, we'd be the white, you know? And so that just really stuck with me because, you know, as a four years old, I, I grew up in a predominantly black and Puerto Rican neighborhood and I didn't see anything wrong with my skin color. And, uh, you know, and even my own perception of race, racial identity when I was little, was different because like I mean I didn't know too many white people so at that time like my my mother is is lighter skin and my dad was is dark skin and um uh you know I used to tell people my mom was white and my dad was black you know like so I mean I I didn't have a concept of of race when I was a little little girl and I I talked early so I was just like my mommy's white and you know so so I kind of had an affinity for people that looked you know light skin like my mom and stuff and so that's sort of like kind of speaks to the kind of bias that kids have but it wasn't racialized and then you know and then as I you know my mom would correct people because I mean you could you know you could see she's a woman of color and um but by this time like at four you know like I I'd experienced some difference like having um teachers who are not black and and being told that that somehow God saw something wrong with my sister's um, beautiful, like mahogany skin and, you know, and my brown, you know, my brown skin, like our shades of brown, there was something wrong. And, and that just really stuck with me. Um, then 
when I moved to California, it was the kind of uh, racial bullying from schools, whether that was the, uh, you know, like, I mean, I'm sure we've all heard it, right? It's like from, you know, dehumanizing, from making monkey sounds to like, oh, if you go in the swimming pool, you'll make it dark or, you know, like there was just like so many things growing up as a little girl that I had experienced. And, you know, like I, I just, I knew I had to start early, right? I mean, because that, that left, you know, when I think back to my childhood, I think about the imprint of, of um, having those racial encounters when, when as a child, and it doesn't go away. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It's interesting, you know, yeah, uh, just listening to, to you talk about that. Um, in my own experience, for me, uh, my first uh, well, real racist experience was actually at school when um, my, my history teacher started teaching us slavery. And then I said uh, to him, you know, uh, I would rather, you know, learn about, you know, what we did before slavery or what we were before slavery. So I asked him, what were we before slavery? And then he looked at me and said, son, you were always just slaves. Mm. Wow. Yes. And that was, at, you know, imagine that's a, he said that to me at 12. You know, so it, it's interesting that that turned me off history. But then, you know, later on, um, I started to do self self study. You know, but it's just yeah. You know, the, I had a similar right. I mean that that to me was the the like when it was in school during and like we didn't have Black History Month and then but it was like hey you know the teachers was well-meaning was like you know asked me Margaret did you have any ancestors that were slaves and it was just like I just just slumped into my seat I just wanted to disappear and it was around that same age and you know I think I was like around 11 and and I didn't know like there was no history that was taught either and um, you know, the little boys, there was two little white boys in the back and, and they used to make fun, like they, you know, like, cause that's when we we're learning some of the African countries. So like Niger and Nigeria and, you know, they said it with the hard, like they said it, you know, like with the N word and they just would crack jokes or, you know, say, call me slave in the background. Like that was the running kind of joke. So there's a lot of demeaning anti-African sentiment and, um, you know, and and in the classroom, but it was you know when you have a teacher that that just reduces your history to to a state of subjugation and dehumanization, it just left such a profound impact on me that wasn't turned around until I moved from Santa Clara to East San Jose, and I had my first black teachers, and we did Black History Month, and I learned all of these wonderful things that black people contributed to society that changed so much for me so you know uh, you just said there about um uh, when you moved and then you started doing uh studying black history you had black history month was that in your mainstream like school yeah i went to a public school right in east san jose called mount pleasant high school which is uh, right around the corner from from my house and where my mom still lives and um, I had Mrs. French who taught English and um, Mr. Smith who taught history and so 
So I remember early on, I think it was in um, one of the social studies classes. And I think for me, the first thing where I started to feel some deep sense of pride was watching Eyes on the Prize, which was incredibly traumatizing. Oh, yes. At the same time, Mm -hmm. at the same, and there's a new, there's a new one, which I, I have to, to watch it just came out um but it was but it was the acts of resistance it wasn't that we we were free because i remember um when i was that little like the same little girl in that same year there was a little white girl that she she was so upset and she actually you know she was like my great 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 grandfather died to free you people she's a you people and and she was like tears in her eyes like this happened like yesterday so so that that was the image that I had was that this horrible war was fought to free my people and you know and seeing those signs go back to Africa and uh, when I saw I learned about black resistance and we went on a field trip and watched glory and, and and it was that my my teachers were much more conscious in middle school and in in San Jose and in high school and I learned about resistance and and it really it, it really turned a corner for me. It was Black History Month, really. Mm. So tell us, what did you study at university? Um, yeah, my, my favorite teacher, Mr. Smith, um, was my social studies teacher. And in many ways, he, kind of, he, he planted a, a love of history. And um, when I was in undergrad, I, I had a very circuitous road to finishing my undergrad. It took me about 10 years. I, um, I started out at community college and I, you know, I was interested in a number of things from communications to sound design. And uh, then I, when I went back and was like, okay, like I got to get really serious. And I had support at the time to try to just focus on my studies I was interested in becoming a social studies teacher like Mr. Smith. And I applied to transfer to Santa Clara University, which was a dream college. I just, there was a time I never would have imagined that I'd be able to go to a school like that. And, um, and I got accepted. And, um, you know, at first I thought I was gonna teach and, you know, life changed and all my finances kind of like everything kind of bottomed out and I spent three years unable to finish school. And when I came back, I, I had to streamline to really focus so that I could graduate in time in a short amount of time and spend less money. And so I decided to finish with a history degree. And the week before I was returning, it was 9-11 and that just really shook things up and you know I knew I was going to finish with history initially I thought I was just going to go into tech writing so that's where all that work at the startups that I was doing when I was out out of school and um and I thought I was just going to be a tech writer and but my professors encouraged me to consider the academy um, because of all of these kind of discussions and, and my inquiries in, in undergrad. And so I eventually applied to, um, to, I decided I was going to apply to graduate school and um, in 2003, 2004. And so I was admitted to, to Stanford University and that's where I studied 
also history, but my focus was on Islam, uh, Islamic history and Islamic Africa. So Middle East history, Islamic Africa, but I was carving out this kind of special area of like this Islamic history and the new Abbasi program that was at Stanford. Mm, great. Interesting. So how has your life been growing up as a Muslim in America? Yeah, so I didn't grow up Muslim. I had grew I grew up um, kind of exploring different faith, like different forms of Christianity uh, as a child. And um, I embraced Islam at 18. And so, and part of that was because when I was younger, I, I read the Bible from the front to the back. So it was like, you know, and this the idea of the, there was a, a passage where, um, you know, and, and it's kind of interesting that, you know, like how it's framed, but there's a passage where, where uh, in the Bible it says, I'm a jealous God, don't worship any other God before me. And I was just like, okay, very monotheistic and things didn't kind of jive. Like I was like, okay, there's some things that could be symbolic. I really struggled with the idea of the Trinity that, that this, this vast, infinite God, creator of the entire universe could come on earth and so I, I started a kind of religious exploration. And in my studies, I came across um, an anti, it was a very anti-Muslim book. I'm sure you may have heard of it. Um, so I remember I like read it in pretty much like one full day, which was like the destruction of African civilization by Chancellor Williams. Yes, yes, I read it. <laughs> yeah. Very destructive. I, I, I've got the book and it's, you know, that made me really hot. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. But it, but you know what? Was it something my takeaway? Because at mm. the time, you know, we were all still, you know, like there's like the wars in Spain. So I was like, what mm. is it about this Islam mm. that would make all these kind of Berber groups? Because he was very like also anti, you know, like he kind of framed um, the like Berbers as mixed race or like the mixed mm. race people as like being the just you know the bringers of destruction of african society yeah. and mm. and i have a lot of mixed race family members so i was mm. kind of curious i was like what is this what is he talking about mm. so it really made me curious and then i read the the autobiography of malcolm not the autobiography i read the fbi files of malcolm x oh so wow. when i read the fbi files i, I need that. to yeah so 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 this was like all the kind of collections that were known Mm. by um and and so that book really had me think around okay there is something deeply transformative about islam like one if they could get um you know these kind of nomadic tribes to to actually kind of form these empires empires that went over into like you know the iberian peninsula but also like if they were able to take this man who is imperfect and I wasn't a perfect you know student or perfect person I, I ran the streets a lot I just you know like I did a lot of things and so um you know I was like well if Islam could do that for for uh Malcolm Little like what could it do for me like okay well, and and this could actually help me you know stay more on track and, and not be bothered by certain things and certain people and and so I was experiencing like street harassment, which was a, 
which was also like a problem if I was just trying to go to work or go to the store or go to meet someone it was like the level of violence against women you know like if like you know there would be guys that pull up on the road and then if I was just like no I don't you know like I would lie and be like I have a boyfriend and then they would cuss me out and sometimes they'd follow me and it was kind of scary sometimes and so I was like well maybe this covering stuff could solve this issue right and I can I can you know, I could do my work and, and not be bothered and not have to worry about, you know, this kind of physical threat and harassment. And so I started just kind of reading more and more about Islam. And by that, um, it was that summer of 93. And by the fall, I had ran about, uh, ran across Martin Ling's and I was in my music class. And I would just kind of like not pay attention to class. And I would just read the, um, the biography, the Sira, the Martin Ling Sira. And I just was like, I just had a moment in that art class where I was just like, this is like Islam is is real. Like this is truth. And you know, like it was just such a just such a beautiful moment. And I remember I had like my music book in front of me in the Martin Ling's book and I was like my teacher was lecturing about, you know, like I guess sound waves and I was just like yeah, and I I contacted my friend and I was like, I want to take Shahada. And we drove up to Oakland that, you know, the next Sunday and I took my Shahada and, and I've been Muslim ever since. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. MashaAllah. Um, yes, the, the autobiography of Malcolm X, that book, subhanAllah, has done so much good. I mean, the reward that Al-Hajj Malik Ashabaz must be getting in his grave even to this day. You know, because so many people, even me myself, that was one of that is my turning point, which really made me uh, want to become serious about Islam. Was reading that autobiography of Malcolm X as well, fantastic. And you know, uh, yeah, the FBI files. That's interesting. I put that down because I haven't, I haven't seen that book. But recently, uh, just a few years ago, we did we did something called Clubhouse, and we was talking. We was remembering Malcolm. You know, and then uh, mm-hmm. it was like it was a really beautiful time. We were saying to everybody, it was like, okay, um, what what does Malcolm mean to you? He's on his birthday, and what does it mean? What does it mean to you? And everyone? Was talking about their different experiences of Malcolm and stuff. It was fabulous. But then one thing that came up was uh, another book that I ha- that I hadn't read, which was um, the Dead Arising, the Dead Are Arising, the Life of Malcolm X, and. I, I just I've read that just recently and it's so interesting as well because it brought a whole new dimension because then because because of course autobiography is him is Malcolm talking to you mm-hmm. but then in the dead horizon there's all different you know and people talking and bringing different perspectives so that that is great I love that book I have to get that I mean I'm I'm kind of building trying to build a mini library and every time I talk to you I, I end up going getting a little bit broker because I'm buying more books that, <laughs> that you mentioned Clubhouse and then yes. I have this long list of a wish list of books and so yeah. I, I need some more bookshelves you know <laughs> like I'm running out of room I try to tuck them away and everything yes. but it's 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 so you know it's so powerful the I mean the lives that he impacted personally absolutely um, I actually met the widow of uh, uh, Ronald Stokes um, who was who was killed by the LAPD in, in the in the 60s and and um, 
you know, like he, Malcolm X had actually came out to LA. Like he was really, um, really upset and sensed by that and wanted to politically motive, uh, mobilize to address um, police brutality. And, and so when you, when you meet people like her who, who were uh, comforted, right, by, by Malcolm X and, and um, you know, like that's just really powerful. And, and I've met, um, you know, like uh, different imams, um, some who passed, um, who who knew him, and and so it's it's just been um, you know like it's wonderful that there's like stories that are collected and people who have have their perspectives and and I hope that we can gather those and and as this you know it, it, each generation for us to share like so so I hope that um, there's more conversations around what does Malcolm mean to us and, and how how yeah. his life. Um, and transformations have have meant to for us because mm. I think in many ways you know growing up kind of working class and um, you know even though he did, did have like a family of activists like my um, you know I mean I didn't come from a tradition of of, uh, of you know like my family was definitely working class I'm the first to go go to college and you know and, and sometimes when you when you read around you know like black leaders and and you know people would say like yes my mother was like a teacher or this or that or you know like and it's and but when you have someone that was was in the streets and 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 built themselves up right mm -hmm. you know and and yes. self-made and um yes. that gave gave me a lot of hope and, and pathways for me to earn my dignity um in many ways that the nihilism that I saw and the, and the disrespect for black women like mm. it was Islam gave me you know some time to like really like a space to explore different parts of myself that that were lost um mm. yeah and kind of growing up in in that era where um there was a lot of uh, misogyny and definitely misogynoir mm. and so you know in in many ways of you know and I'm not saying I've been you know, like, I mean, he was exemplary Muslim through, you know, and through his passing. And, and my journey was also very circuitous. You know, there's times like, you know, when I first came in, it was like, you know, hurrah, like, you know, like, it was just like yeah. really in the faith and, you know, and ebbed and flowed and, you know, and, and looking back in retrospect, right, it's like me um, re-embracing my faith um, doing the kind of, which was part of this kind of exploration post 9-11 and going into the kind of studies that uh, weren't available, you know, like I, I, I feel definitely really blessed the time there, there weren't as many education resources. We didn't have platforms like Clubhouse. We didn't have online learning, right? There were no places in the United States where you could learn Arabic, right? There was just like, if you didn't have finances, it just wasn't going to be. And and so for me, when I went back to school and went to graduate school, it opened up for me opportunities uh, to, to actually go abroad and, and to experience, have a different experience as part of the African diaspora, which included going to, to Northern Africa. So I went to Morocco, I went uh, to the UK. I went to like one time I had to do research in the UK. I had to go to Durham for the Sudan archives, and mm. and so it was. It's been um, you know like my my own exploration and understanding Islamic history is 
opened up a world for me that in some ways parallels those like the travels that Malcolm did when he was in you know in Africa and he went to the to the Middle East and you know I definitely still need to go to West Africa inshallah my, inshallah. my mother she inshallah. was like just saying she she looks for she would love to go to Africa inshallah um, so that would be really, really exciting. I tell mm. her, I, I told her, I was like, we have to go to Senegal. The food's really yes. good. We're, we're, <laughs> we're going to make that happen. We're going to make that happen. <laughs> you go to Senegal, inshallah, yes. You'll be full circle. So part of my, one of my chapters and the chapter that I shared in How We Fight White Supremacy was um, was in in Morocco and, and where I went to the uh the Dori uh, Ahmed Tijani, and that's Ooh. where I saw the uh, ziara of, of beautiful. I mean, these sisters were so beautiful. Like I just was like amazed at. They were from Mali. They were, you could tell like, they're slightly different dress types of dresses that they were wearing, and um, you know, and there were Moroccan women there, and and we did salah there, and I was like, this. It was like such a powerful moment and, and I don't speak French. Um, well, I, but at that time I didn't know any French. I took one year and it's really, my French is really poor. And, um, but it was just like the ways we were able to communicate through prayer and being in one. And that just opened up this whole other journey and in intellectual inquiry into the network of the Tijani Tarifa. And because I was like, I just had this profound experience and connection of communities across difference, but sameness. And so, um, and so, yeah, like eventually I, I, I do pray that I have the opportunity to go full circle and, and to experience, because um, I, I visited the Tijani community in, in Cairo and met even some folks in, in in Kuwait. And so, you know, like it's been, it would just be really, really, really wonderful to do that. Inshallah, that will happen. Well, inshallah, that will happen. You will go, inshallah. We'll do that. Inshallah. Right, okay. So, um, yeah, so why did you set up Muslim Ark? Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the journey of Muslim Ark really has a lot to do with those kind of roots, which... That's part of why I included in my biography of teaching in, in Islamic um, spaces. And so with um, UMM, United Muslim Masjid, um, that is a predominantly African-American community. And so is Sister Claire Muhammad. And, um, but when I taught at um, Aqsa Islamic Academy, that uh, is, it was a school that was like about half uh, Palestinian, half, um, you know, half african-american there was a sprinkling of other communities like a few south asian um some other you know a few other arab uh families that are you know many other areas but i would say like north philly has uh philadelphia uh has a um has a lot of palestinians in in that region uh, part of the city and so what i had started to notice was the um the self-esteem of the little black Muslim girls, right? Or even just like the frustration of some of some of our students where there were Arab students that were using the N-word, but they were also calling us Abid, you know? Like even the teachers, like they'd say stuff in Arabic. And, and I was just like, I know what you're saying. I studied Arabic long enough and that's like, mm. that's really rude. And 
you know like and they would just make this case and kind of push back and argue like it's not a demeaning using abid is not a demeaning term and i was like yes it is mm. and so um you know like some of the racial incidents um left an impact on me like of just thinking about it and i taught at community college where i began to become like credentialed in online learning and as i started to see uh go on social media and i had noticed that there were um that there was like actually one person that worked for care whose name uh, Daoud Walid and he would just kind of try to politely educate um non-black muslims who were using slurs to um to drop the a word mm. and so you know and i would get involved in trying to call them out and sometimes i get frustrated and mad cuz you know i mean i i'm you know i am who i am i was raised you know like to kind of fight for myself and everything and um you know like it would just be really frustrating and then um doing this online like you know like of trying to make a case or argue like why this isn't and i was just like wow there's so much hubris so much pride like people are just really digging in their heels and so i st- i i was um taking another course to learn for instructional design and um i started building out a course for doing anti-racism and i was like okay if this could be like a open course we can eventually learn like be be able to train people who could go to their communities and do this work around that time around december i was put in contact with a a recent uh, graduate from Wayne State Law and her name is Numira Islam who had sent out a large email to people to address anti-blackness in muslim communities and you know a few of the people on there were responsive and um out of that about five five women we kind of came together with an action plan like okay let's create some an education campaign and launch it during black history month with um you know and that campaign would include you know because at first we're debating like you know should we use black history month and start out with a negative like drop the a word and we decided well if y'all like they are had already developed the hashtag being black and muslim that they wanted to use and I was like well let's start with that it was black history month and there's a lot of great things that black folks have done so it doesn't have to just be all like negative like you know don't be racist against me month but you know it's black history month we've done so much and so we launched being black and muslim and that within 24 hours like it trended and there was a wonderful things that were said right there is a lot of pride and like the types of foods we eat the different cultures right you know cuz like um there's a diversity of voices of of folks who you know what they eat like was it jollof rice was it you know like the like the somali foods was it you know as like bean pies for black muslims you know like so we were just all like you know talking about our leaders you know it was definitely beyond belal but like historical leaders um works contributions and love of our community and so that was beautiful but there was also a lot of stories of heartbreak and experiences of discrimination and um you know like after you know like when we launched that we knew we had to continue the work and by the end of black history month we were still the group of us we were still meeting 
um, there was like Hinmeki, who's Sudanese. There is uh, Diallo Khalifa, who's Lebanese. Mayfell Hassan, who's Syrian. Namir Islam, who's Bangladeshi. And myself as a kind of the first, like who kind of launched that initiative. And by the end, you know, by April, like we, we had decided we were going to launch different heritage campaigns and do a needs assessment survey. And so by the time we, we started developing the needs assessment, we, we were also, we knew we kind of received a mantle. Like this wasn't something that would just be one initiative that we probably would need to start a human rights education organization that would focus on like training people um, and gathering people, connecting people and advocating to um, center anti-racism. And um, by that summer, with the um for me it was like the killing of eric garner and then um you know and then with ferguson with mike brown's um the police killing of mike brown um that really brought up the justice aspects um for me that it wasn't simply enough to just focus on intra-muslim racism that we had to do a lot of the systemic work and that Muslims in general needed to stand up and support Black Muslims who have been facing police brutality from Amadou Diallo um, and more. And um, even uh, this week, this Friday, I just heard from a sister, Sister Khadija, whose, um, whose son was um, killed by the LAPD. There's no video. So it's just like, we're all impacted, oh right? And I mean, my, my uncle, was killed by police and oh my God. you know and so it's just like in all the harassment my brother had experienced and being roughed mm. up and and things and so you know and I just felt like there was a complacency within the broader Muslim community and that that issues that were a concern for black Muslims should be on the major platform just like as Muslims show up for Palestine that we have to show up for black yeah. lives mm-hmm. and so um you know, that's what we began to agitate and and that really solidified the importance of the work that Muslim Arc was doing, you know, not just, you know, beyond the like slurs or feeling alienated or, you know, like, I mean, there's like real legitimate things from pay disparities of how black Muslims are paid and then how if somebody's white and Muslim, how like a, a white Muslim speaker will get like, astronomical pay compared to an equally qualified black Muslim um, or teachers even like there's just so many levels of intra-Muslim discrimination and at the same time like the Muslim community wasn't seeing racial justice as their issue but yet saying like everybody should care about Islamophobia but I you know our argument was that Islamophobia is a form of racism and if you get at white supremacy which they didn't want to name at that time then we could address all of, we could address the core root of everything. And um, with Christchurch, right, that's when Muslims began to actually name white supremacy. And, um, you know, like we founded Muslim Ark in 2014 and have agitated for this kind of work. And it really wasn't until like 2021 that like there was a large demand. I would also say, I mean, there, there have been mainstream Muslim organizations that surprisingly and even like traditional scholars that were surprising like for us we were surprised how much support like they're open 
to us doing programming. Um, and that included like Islamic Society of North America allowed us to do workshops or hold, hold the first forum on on race with all from Adam and I held children's workshops and um, you know like we had like um, CARE, Council of American Islamic Relations um, you know like there's many different chapters like they were supportive um, and came out to one of our um, even like the founder actually was part of like a video series like talking about Muslim Mark and this was like during our um, like our first year so there was a lot of like things that were like that made it possible for us to, to be but there was like less of the impetus for people like for organizations to get trained or people feeling like they needed to be trained like they liked us to do their youth programming or college students would bring us out um, and our hope was to do like kind of like the deeper work around um, changing individuals, our relationships with each other and institutions. What has been the challenges you faced? Yeah, so I think, yeah, I mean, there's been many an uphill challenge for um, one, it's like we have a community that see, that is very di- racially diverse um, and, uh, and they don't see, people didn't see the need for the types of um, training that we had. Um, sometimes the, the thing that was the most challenging was that um, people could use the, um, like the altruisms, you know, right? And like we have the hadith, right? And, and, and they would say that, but they, you know, and they're like, Islam did away with racism and that was it. You know, we were, they, they, there was sometimes pushback as far as being seen as divisive. Um, so I remember there was like a boycott of us. Like, so one of my friends said like her Latino Muslim friends saw us as divisive. And, um, you know, which was, you know, I, I felt, I found that to be very, um, sad and frustrating like they didn't even engage with our content i think sometimes there's misconceptions around the foundations of our curriculum as not being grounded in in tradition or in islam um and and a lot of times it's from people who who have not been to our programming or or been in the conversation with me around um you know the type of training that i brought into building out curriculum as an educator but also as someone whose scholarship was around Islamic learning. <laughs> like, it's just like, I have like Islamic history. And, yes. you know, like I studied with, you know, people who studied at Azhar, and, uh, mm. you know, um, uh, you know, like just traditional institutions. And um, I think sometimes the challenge too is, is, you know, like we, we have a community that um, is, uh, some people it's easier to have access right you know like so say if if a brother wants to like you know meet after and talk for a long time there's there's not the awkwardness around that around um so it's like i think we need you know a creating healthy um engagement where whether it's like men and women can can work collectively on on building an institution because Muslim art, there's nothing that exists like Muslim art that works on, like, we are the only national edu- anti-racism education organization. 
Like there's people that may do anti-racism, but we're the only one that does that and addresses Islamophobia and racism that is meant to build capacity within Muslim communities for anti-racism work. And um, in many ways it's leading that charge. I mean, I know it was like very exhausting for Dawood Walid and, and, you know, he had a whole chapter of care to run. And so, you know, we really tried to work to like keep that charge going and keep that conversation going. But it was, you know, there was a lot of times where where there was so much of the focus on like how it agitated as opposed to what we were building. And so um, I also think that sometimes like the language around social justice and the trauma that people experience. So it tends to focus on the negativity of it. And it it always saddened me to see, a, you know, every few months or every year, there's like a major racial row and you have people who um, are kind of like living out their trauma and um, they're not addressing the situations in healthy or creative, like in healthy ways that can heal the wounds. And so I sometimes see that the racial discourse on social media hurts. And then there's a, there's a discussion around scholar versus activists that I found that was troubling. And that um, I think my other challenge was that as someone who had kind of a, both like my scholarship was rooted in the academy but at the same time, I had also traditional training um, for that to be diminished and then me just to be framed as a secular person trying to do that work. And so with, as opposed to so that scholar activist divide, but yet I'm not invited to those conversations around scholar versus activist where I'm like, I'm a bit of both, you know, like I study Islam, I've been... Muslim, I'm in community, I build community. There's not like that divide was artificial and let's have a conversation. And so having conversations about Muslim art or overhearing the conversations and not being part of it, I think that kind of harmed the the forward movement that we needed for the work. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that, you know, it's really interesting what you said, because I think Muslim art, you know, you, you have the balance there because, you know, you um, you have that, you know, that academia and also the, the traditional training, but also, you know, the social training and the, the social aspect, which is so important. And it's so interesting that, that you mentioned this because just yesterday I, I was, I I, um, I I took part. I was, I was on a one day course um, by uh, is it, a female professor actually, um, Sheikha Sheikha Halima, actually from Germany, and she was doing a, a course on Ibn Khaldun. So we was looking at Ibn Khaldun. Wow. And it, yeah, it's a one day course. They 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 they, they, they um, interesting, but it, it's funny because um, and she always likes to have lots of discussions going as well and it's interesting because one of the things that, that, that came out is that you know was the idea that um uh like muslims that we've lost our way uh you know like for example we focus a lot on the mosque and we focus a lot on you know the building and like you know like the chandeliers and you know collecting the money on friday 
and you mm-hmm. know the khutbas the khutbas are really uh you know not engaging we don't really do we don't really deal with the social issues and uh in, in many cases the actual masjid itself as well especially i can say in the uk is that it has become really like an old man's club so you go there and it's just a lot of old men sitting there uh, and if you come in there they, they tell you to be quiet and you don't make any noise but what has happened is that we've got terrible issues in our community there's you know there's you know there's domestic violence there's there's alcohol abuse there's gambling there's there's, there's gang membership there's young boys being killed in gangs we've got the prison population rising um uh, uh, muslims in prison we've got you know drug abuse rising all of these issues are going on in the muslim community and the muslims like haven't got to grips with it you know and yeah. it's, it's interesting so you're saying there like you know people are looking at you and saying maybe you know are, are you guys too secular but we have to deal with the challenges because the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam what is so interesting about him he dealt with his challenges of his time you know he, he had a challenges of you know idol worship whatever but now we have our challenges and we're not and it's it's all it's on all of our heads you know like exactly. the, the issues that are going on and the muslims you know uh, you know, yeah, Alhamdulillah. So I think what um, you know, what you're doing, a Muslim arc is is right on the is right on there. But but that that's always the way. But when you're doing the right thing and you're kind of like uh, the flag bearers and you're pushing, you know, what needs to be done, there's always that pushback from you know small-minded people. You always get that pushback, you know. Yeah, uh, and unfortunately, what I mean, like what you're saying, it's that. You know, when we have these social issues like poverty and, and things, and and yet it's like our investment is like kind of like in in very difficult to maintain buildings, and and yeah, we do need spaces to pray and communal spaces, but at the same time, like those spaces should be supported by 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 the walk. You know, like we're not like you know the types of businesses that Muslims are involved in, and, and we should be creating opportunities for people to live dignified lives. And and so it's it's really um, you know like we should be part of the solution, right? For and like for within our own community, but also within our own own neighborhoods for and doing more philanthropy. And yet, you know, there's this idea especially i know in within the united states a lot of the money is exported out mm-hmm. without you know and they're yes. just saying like oh yeah like there's no need but yet we have we have widows and divorcees who are just like i don't know how i'm going to take care of my children mm. right like That's you have true. like yes. homeless muslims like our elder care like all of these things and and when we're thinking about racial justice when we're thinking about anti-racism it's like how do we build institutions that address people's needs like how do we how do we better our society and how do we think about those who are the most impacted rather than just focusing on like trying to get um white people to like us so that we're comfortable you know like so that was like a lot of the focus post 9/11 right is like mm. yes like we do have to focus on muslim rights and you know there's yeah. incredible abuses against muslims and but the way that it was framed right is like almost like exceptional like we don't deserve this but yeah it's okay to have mass incarceration but now people are seeing those connections right the mass incarceration of 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 black and latino folks and and native americans in the united states but also the disproportionate arrest of 
of Muslims and how they're treated. And so we're able to like make better connections and, and build better lines of solidarity for all the people who are impacted by, by um, oppressive systems. So this goes right into my next question, um, what we've been talking about now, and which is what is the way forward you know, to outlaw racism in the Muslim community? Yeah, the the way forward, right, is is the the you know, I mean we we know it's it's gonna be a struggle. Like if it was if it was something that could could be absolutely eradicated, I don't know if that would have been in the final sermon. Um, you know, like it's just like that we just need the constant reminders and be able to show up what does this look like in practice, right? Like when when we do have a society that is um that is privileging one race over another and has, you know, racial outcomes that are harming and targeting groups of our community. Um, I think that we have to to really begin with some deep assessments of where we're at. And I would just use like, I use the model of, of cultural competency, which is like, you know, the first, the first step is assessment, right? It's like, that's like the first competency how do we assess where we're at? What are what are what do we know? What do we don't know? Um, what do we know that we? What do we not know that we think we know? What do we think we know but it's wrong? You know, like so it's just like all of those things we need to really kind of do those types of assessments and have a deep understanding um, and deep reflection of how we've internalized both white supremacy but ethno nationalism of like Asabia, like how do people kind of don't have a positive self-identity, whether it's like either like racial inferiority or a racial superiority. Um, we need to assess that. Then we need to do deep learning around like how does racism operate on all levels and, and shape our behavior and, and is in our institutions, how it's in the air that we breathe and, and that we need to do some things to counteract it. Like what are models that we could do to disrupt and interrupt racism, the, whether it's implicit bias to the explicit bias to the things that we reproduce consciously. Um, I think we need to have deep, uh, like the, the other competency that that Muslim Mark uses is like we use like um, accountability and we kind of combine accountability with shura so we're just like okay consultation and accountability which is this deep partnership that we have with each other to hold each other into account in solidarity um, so that means like we need to have like deep measures right on that and check in with each other to, to see like have I left you behind have I done something that's harmful and do those kind of like self-accountability works. This is things that I've seen in like Tezkiah, Tesawuf, like practices of accountability and reflection to even just checking on each other, right? And, and, and doing the talba that we need to do to, to correct wrongs and how we harmed each other. Um, the third competency that we really need to think about is like being very strategic in our institutionalization. So institutionalization is a competency that we kind of struggle with. There's a lot of like self-help books on anti-racism and study groups and reading groups. And yet there's like, there's a non-performance of that. Um, we need to think about ways that things change. How do we change our institutions? How do we change our behavior? Where can we be most impactful? What is our game plan? 
strategy, whether that's through coaching, right? You know, we could, like, uh, I studied Islam in the academy. There are people who know Arabic fluently, understand the Quran deeply, right? Like they could write whole treatises on that and even like talk about what prayer is, but they've never done Salat because they're not Muslim. They're mm. not Muslim, right? You know what I'm saying? So you can have this intellectual mm. grasp of Islam, yeah. but it's like when you're praying every day and you're hitting your forehead to the ground, you know, I'm not saying you hit it, but you're putting your forehead to the ground mm. and every day your practice, like you're, you're, you're like, it's like, we're doing it right like we yeah. we are embodying that we're reciting quran like you know like even if it's just small chapters mm. it's not like you just sit there and be like i've mastered islam because i read the quran once we are reading it constantly in our prayers we're doing our dhikr right it's just like it is who we are and embodied. So it's like anti-racism is the same thing, right? It's like you could read all the books you want, but until you're doing something different, until you're committed to say like, I'm gonna do this particular, like our Hajj ritual, like the, the like, you know, what's anti-racist is when you have white, you know, like, I mean, not saying they're white, but like light-skinned Moroccan women and, dark-skinned African women coming together shoulder to shoulder, right? Like that's the embodied practice of anti-racism, right? When we go on Hajj and all of our class lines are reduced and we are just going before our Lord, that's anti-racist. So it's like thinking about how do we truly embody that in our relationships and our faith practices and, and the ways we engage with each other and our commitments towards solidarity into humbling ourselves to having humility when we're whether we have conflict with someone or how we open up our pockets to help someone because we care because they're human like those are the everyday anti-racist acts that are faith acts when we look to our sunnah right we look to the sira we look to those and we're like we truly embody what the early muslims did to build community then we will address like we will continually be addressing racism and it'll be the embodied practice just like we continually make those decisions to be muslim and to follow you know like to obey allah to like worship allah and part of that is like i'm trying to get rid of racial arrogance right like it's just like and i'm and and that's i think it's the same thing it's like we 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 do we are by doing it Wow, that is really powerful. Um, who are your role models, past and present? Yeah, I mean, I have so so many. I mean, my role models, honestly, like are like, I mean, I look at the the elders in our communities who who sacrifice so much. So sometimes when I get really really tired, and, and then I just think about. You know, and I, I just have so many of these sisters in the back of my head, but they're the ones who are serving um, the iftar on the line, and they've been doing it for 40 years. You know, like those are the sisters that are my role models, because I want to be that auntie that's like that, who gives a smile, and you know, I who I've turned to, like I have, um, you know, like sister. Um, 
uh, Naima Baton, who is like my mentor. And I met her when she was around my age now. So it's like now I'm mentoring people like that. Um, you know, and many people don't know her, right? But it's like, but the ways that she helped um, guide me with so much love. Um, there's like Dr. Amina Adin, who wrote African American Islam, and and just like, you know, she's actually on my board, and it's it's a dream, you know. Like she just is like she shoots from the hip, and she just tells you, you know, what she thinks, and you know, and 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 it's like she what she's gone through and and her her impact on community and I say like all the the sisters that embody that it's it's the you know it's like our elders right who who had like started the like little um storefront messages and um you know worked tirelessly and so there's so many people that are my role models that I that I hope that we uplift their stories and that we know like and we honor them and you know there's there are teachers our educators i mean so many you know so many wonderful teachers who taught our children and continue to teach those who are most marginalized and you know and then there there's there's our famous folks you have nana smau like there's malcolm x there's um you know like i mean there's just so many amazing scholars that that we can draw from um and it's like it's the humble people that have just carried forth Islam that have been like you know the saints the awliya that we know and don't know yes wow okay yes a great um, a great list um, so what book have you read that deeply impacted you I know you talked about Malcolm X <laughs> is there any other ones or um, gosh, well, for people that kind of follow my social media, especially my Twitter, they know, they probably should know my favorite book is Dune. Um, and which is, which is so, was impactful before I was Muslim. And then mm. afterwards, when I reread it as a Muslim, and I saw all the Islamic influences, mm. and I kind of, um, you know, the political thought that was in it, and some of the, the spiritual aspects of it have just really left an impact on me um and thinking about you know the the ways like our imagination and the possibility of um how we can harness our internal capacities to achieve like kind of infinite possibilities and it was just it's really pretty cool to see you know muslims in 20,000 years in the future so that's that's pretty cool muslims in space always enjoy that um so i would say like that's been a very impactful from a science fiction level um and um you know the martin ling's uh biography of Mal uh, of muhammad um definitely transformed my life it was just such a beautiful book so that's like the non-fiction book that i would say has been the most impactful right okay um so what is one wisdom that was imparted to you that you live by yeah i mean i guess for me that i try to live by is um sort of an abstraction of Ibn Atala, which is just the like, you know, of understanding that you don't 
earn Allah's love that it's given you know and that we just keep trying you know that it's like but all the efforts are really owned by Allah and are you know attributed to Allah not me and so I know that's like an abstraction but it's like when I read his um, aphorisms which are so many that really um, and it was during a very difficult time when I was reading it um, where I felt like I needed redemption as as a Muslim who's still trying to find my way back to the deen um, that you know it's really like you know you take a step towards Allah and like Allah will come running right and and just like understanding like what is mercy right like so that that has been just very powerful for me of just like of of acceptance that um that my shortcomings are and allow me to experience a lot of grace and mercy um and to just really embrace that that you know my own not to say i'm embracing my faults and that's okay but just like that allows like that redemption journey which i i'm still on so alhamdulillah i'm really blessed to be here alhamdulillah rabbil alameen um jazakallah professor marguerite that was absolutely amazing that was really really good lots of food for thought and lots of things to think about and lots of good advice there um that was really enjoyable i'm sure that lots of people are going to get um, lots out of it and just to say okay so if anyone uh, is really interested in your work and wants to contact you like you know um, how, how can they get in contact with you what's your like your social media what do they call it handles yeah so my my twitter is marjorie uh, underscore aziza so m-a-r-g-a-r-i underscore a-z-i-z-a um, my Instagram I believe it's like marguerite.hill um, you know there's just like you know my Instagram is more like you know my home stuff but you know I'm happy to reach out there and, and connect with people um, my email is marguerite at muslimarc.org so you know you could check out Muslim Arc um, online and see what my community right is doing and, and how we're just continuing trying to inform and and motivate and inspire and connect with folks who inspire us and so you know be sure to follow us at muslim arc um you know we have a lot of great things coming up um you know like this is really great like i mean we have this is uh for for us like black history month like is in the united states in february so we look forward to that we also do a lot of things for juneteenth which is the um the year like the the um honors the liberation of um enslaved africans in the united states and we do black august so you know like we we lo- love look forward to doing more programs to connect and um so be sure to follow us at muslim arc and um and tag us if you have some interesting things that you're doing that relate to anti-racism we love to share out Alhamdulillah, Jazakallah care. That was really amazing. And so, um, yes, so you heard. So that was um, Professor Marguerite Hill. I hope that you enjoyed that. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's a special one for Black History Month. So please, um, uh, if you really enjoyed that, please share it with your 
you know, with your friends and colleagues and everyone that would be interested in it. Alhamdulillah. Until uh, we meet next time, uh, stay safe. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala barakatuhu.